Let's grab our Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 16. You know, it's all been good stuff up to this point, and it's getting better. Um, today we are in an exciting chapter, chapter 16. I wish we could do the whole thing together, but time will not permit us, so we're going to do the first half today, uh, verses 1 through 15 of Acts chapter 16. So I'm going to read along. We have it up here for you if you uh, don't have a Bible. Uh, there are some Bibles on the pole, uh, on the pole, right behind the pole, on the table behind the pole. So uh, please feel free to grab one and uh, let's read this together. Luke chapter 16, Luke. Luke is the guy who wrote this. Wow. Uh, we're in the book of Acts, which Dr. Luke wrote. Chapter 16, verse 1. Uh, then he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened daily, excuse me, in the faith and increased in number daily. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, <clears throat> come to my house and stay. And she constrained us. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word. And as always, we trust that this being your word, that you will confirm it to our hearts and that you will teach us and that you will guide us in our understanding as well as our application of the truth. And so we look to you this morning and we trust, Lord, that you're going to provide a blessing beyond what we could have imagined. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
So in chapter 15, as we have concluded that, you will recall that a dispute had arisen in the, uh, in the church, both the Jerusalem church as well as in the church at Antioch, as Paul and Barnabas had returned from their first journey. And as they came back from that journey, they reported all of the amazing things that God had done. And as they were sharing what God had done, there were some uh, concerned, devout Jewish believers there who stood up and they objected and they said, you know, the gospel you're preaching is not the complete gospel, Paul and Barnabas. And we, yes, we know God's moving, but we need to kind of stop this thing before it gets out of control, you see, because they aren't uh, observing the law of Moses. They are not circumcised. They're, they're not fully, completely saved. They're only partially saved. And so because of this, the church at Antioch came together, the leadership, and they said, we need to go up to the, the church at Jerusalem. And they had a little meeting up there with all of the church leaders and, and Peter and Paul and Barnabas all spoke. And as they spoke, uh, they, they discovered that God's will, of course, was that there was only one gospel. And the whole point of the Jerusalem Council was to clarify the gospel, to make sure that everyone understood there was only one gospel and that salvation was only in one name. It was in the name of Christ. And that it was not necessary to follow the law of Moses or to be circumcised or to keep some other code in order to be saved. That salvation was by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. So at the end of that time, they had concluded they wrote a letter and they authenticated that letter. And as they sent that letter, a group of men, Paul and Barnabas, and uh, I think it was Barsabbas, if I got his name right, uh, or Jonas, he had two names. And uh, of course, Silas went back to the church in Antioch. <clears throat> and as they went there, they began by sharing the letter there. And the, the uh, Gentile believers, when they heard that, they were rejoicing, they were greatly encouraged. <clears throat> and then the Lord led them to send out another team to go uh, back to the region uh, where the believers had, had come to know the Lord all up through that first missionary journey. So what we'd like to do is just flash up a map. I've got two maps, if you could bring that first one up as we uh, endeavor here. I might take a moment. Should be a map in there somewhere. There we go. Uh, this first map here actually has all three of the journeys on the map in addition to Paul's voyage to Rome at the end. Um, it's a colorful map, it's a good map, but from where you're sitting it might be difficult to read. Uh, the black line is Paul's first missionary journey and I imagine from where you're sitting the black line and the blue line probably look pretty much the same. Uh, but the blue line, the dotted line, is the one we're concerned about um, today. Um, and so if you could just maybe jump over to that second slide, please, which zooms in a bit. So that just brings it a little more into focus. And so if you look over to the right, you'll see uh, Antioch down just above the word Syria. And you see that dotted line, and it follows up and goes up to Tar. 
Tar- Tarsus, and then up through Derby, and then Lystra, and you'll see it kind of goes north up there uh, by the word Asia, and then goes and tra- traverses the border, which is the northern border of Turkey, and takes you around so you can see Troas by the Aegean Sea, and then it goes up all up by Neapolis, uh, which is where Philippi is, and Amphipolis, Berea, Thessalonica, Larissa, Delphi, Athens, all the way down through that comes back across the ocean, then goes to Ephesus, and drops back down to Snidus and Rhodes, and then back all the way down to Jerusalem. That journey is 2,800 miles. Now that's getting in your car and driving from here almost to California. But they did it on foot. So I want you to catch the sense of where we are and of what's happening. So um, if you can leave that up there, it might time out later, but just to bring it back up, that'd be great because we're going to refer to that a couple of times. So they have embarked on this journey. And when it says in verse 1, it says, Then he, that is Paul and his team, came to Derby and Lystra, And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. So first of all, we encounter this young man, Timothy. Who was Timothy? Well, as Paul and his team uh, went through the first time, namely Paul and Barnabas, when they came to this region, to Derbe and Lystra, remember, this was the area where Paul was stoned. And they were severely and harshly mistreated because of the fact that they were preaching the gospel. It is believed, although not fully known, that on that first journey that Timothy uh, was probably there. He became a part of that established church. And we'll talk about that in a minute. In fact, they say there that people give witness to his character. But as Timothy was there, he began to grow in the faith, not just because of getting saved there, but it says the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. As we read along uh, in the scriptures, we find in 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul says this to Timothy. He says, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded, is in you also. So here's the thing. Timothy came from a godly family. His dad was a Greek, and as we understand uh, the situation here, his dad most likely was not a believer. But his mother was a believer, and his grandmother was a believer. And they had raised him in the scriptures. And as they raised him in the scriptures, Timothy, from a very early age, just like a good Jewish boy, was raised according to the scriptures. He uh, may or may not have gone to Hebrew school, if they even had one in that region. But he was certainly raised in the scriptures, noticed by his uh, grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. So let's just take a moment and reflect upon the fact that we can never underestimate the impact and the power of raising kids in a godly home. It is so important, parents, because we have influence. And notice it says here his grandmother Lois. You see, she had a part in this too. Lois probably gave her faith to her daughter Eunice 
and together because families tended to live together. They didn't separate, you know, thank God my, you know, in-laws are hundreds of miles away. No, no, they lived right there in the same town or right there in the same house so often. And so there was this influence, grandparents, that Lois had upon the life of her daughter and her son. And so Timothy was raised in this. He was raised in the ways of the Lord. And when the gospel came through, as uh, Paul and Barnabas came through the first time, no doubt they heard the gospel and it completed their faith. It completed all the gaps in their understanding. And so Timothy had come to know the Lord most likely uh, during that time. Now we understand from historical records that there were about five years between the first missionary journey and the second. And, and so thus, as you go back into, um, you know, the end of chapter uh, 15 there, where Paul said, you know, hey, we should go back to all the places where we went and see how those churches are doing. So it's not like they founded the churches last week or even a year ago, and now they're going back. It's been five years since they have seen these people. And so they stumble upon this young man, Timothy. And as he brings Timothy into the fold, uh, we find some wonderful things about Timothy. Timothy is mentioned 24 times in the New Testament, six times in the book of Acts. The rest of those times he's mentioned in the epistles of Paul. Uh, He was there so often helping Paul, serving Paul. And it would seem, as we look at what's happened here, as they come back to this first church and they encounter Timothy that God is graciously providing someone to assist Paul. Now remember the dispute that we were looking at last week between Paul and Barnabas all came over the fact that Paul and Barnabas couldn't decide, they couldn't agree on should they take John Mark with them. And Paul, of course, had felt that because uh, John Mark had deserted them, that he perhaps his character wasn't up to snuff yet and that they couldn't really depend on him. And remember, Paul had a lot of physical issues. He had ailments. He had health issues. Uh, He had been stoned and he likely had, you know, just ongoing pain and and bruises and whatnot from that. He also, as far as we know, probably had typhoid or, or malaria along the way there on that first journey. So he was kind of already beat up and bruised and battered as he's doing this. And again, remember, they're on a journey of 2,800 miles on foot. And, and this is for how long a period of time? A very, this, is, this is for a couple of years. And so God graciously, you remember, uh, they, they left and it was just Paul and Silas. God graciously now brings Timothy into the fold. So Timothy is brought on the team. He is brought alongside and he becomes that young man, that person whom God provides in the stead of John Mark. One of the things Paul said about Timothy, and and I want to just, you know, kind of highlight here, there is this amazing relationship that developed between Timothy and Paul. In 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, Paul wrote these words about Timothy. He says, but you, speaking to Timothy, must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, referring to himself. Remember, I taught you these things. 
and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now as Paul is writing the letter of 2 Timothy, this is at the end of Paul's life and 2 Timothy is the last letter that Paul ever wrote. So he's writing these words to his son in the faith, Timothy. In fact, he calls Timothy um, uh, his son in the faith uh, a number of times. Later in the book of Philippians, the letter that Paul writes to the Philippian church, listen to what he says and how he refers to Timothy. He says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. Listen to this, For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. So this was a very special relationship. And here we are at the very beginning of that relationship here in Acts chapter 16. And it says in verse 2 that Timothy was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Now, Paul writing to Timothy as well as to Titus said that the qualifications for deacons and elders were that they be people of good reputation. They had to be men of quality, men of character. So from the very beginning of, of Timothy's spiritual life, this is how he's known. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. And I'd like to just say for you and I that this should be the testimony that people would give of us, not just of men, but of, but of ladies as well. That, that our witness, our character, should be of such that others, if somebody says, hey, do you know so-and-so, that they would be able to say of you, he or she is a person of quality, a person of character. They have a good testimony. They're faithful. Verse 3, Paul wanted to have him, that is Timothy, go on with him. And he took him and circumcised him, listen, because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Now, the whole squabble in Acts 15, part of it was over circumcision, wasn't it? But it was that circumcision and keeping the law were essential to the act of salvation, that God's salvation would not be completed to you as a person coming to Christ unless you became like a Jew. And so why is he taking Timothy here and circumcising him? He tells us right here in this verse, because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. You see, by Jewish law, because Timothy came from Jewish, a Jewish mom and a Jewish grandmother, but his father was Greek, because one of the parents was a Jew, he was considered a Jew. But because Timothy had never been circumcised, by Jewish law, he was a, uh, what was called an apostate Jew. He was technically an apostate Jew because he himself had not received the mark of circumcision. So Paul knew this, and Paul knew that if he wanted to take Timothy along with him, that he was going to have to take some measures so that they could travel freely and not have to interact with people as they went into synagogues or encountered other Jewish believers who might know that Timothy was of a partial uh, Greek descent. 
So he says here, he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. So this didn't contradict the account from Acts 15. Rather, it was to expedite their journey. It was to be uh, a witness to those who were uh, Jews who would be, you know, coming under Paul's ministry. In 1 Corinthians 9, here's something that Paul says that helps give us a clue as to why he circumcised Timothy. 1 Corinthians 9.19, Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. What's he saying? I'm laying down my rights. I'm laying down, you know, my freedoms so that I can minister and witness to people. And he says, And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. And I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some." Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. Again, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, if you're interested in that. This is why Paul circumcised Timothy, so that they could travel about freely, minister the gospel to Jews. And notice, Timothy was willing to receive that. The language here also indicates not just that Paul took him and had him circumcised, like sent him down to the circumcision booth down the street. The indication is that Paul did this himself. So imagine now the bond between these two men and that what they have experienced together and they did this for the gospel. Timothy did this so that he could travel with Paul and be a part of this team. So as they went through the cities, verse 4, they delivered to them, that is the churches, the decrees to keep which were determined by the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem. So now this little team of people is Paul, Silas, and now Timothy. And one of the beautiful things about Silas now traveling with Paul is that Paul, excuse me, Silas was an elder in the church in Jerusalem. So Paul most likely, as, as Silas is traveling with him, when they went and they delivered the decree from the Jerusalem council to the churches, probably said, now I'm going to introduce to you Brother Silas, who will come up here. He's an elder from that church, and he's going to deliver the letter from that church. So it had a sense of authoritative uh, tone when these were delivered to those churches. So they delivered the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem. And here's a phrase that's becoming familiar to us now in the book of Acts. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Now here we are, oh, at least 15 years, maybe 20, beyond when uh, the cross happened. And now they are, are traveling and we're seeing here an increase in number daily. Remember all the way back in the book of Acts at the end of chapter 2? Do you remember what it said there? And it says, and they were being increased in number daily. 
a few weeks ago in one of the messages, we went back and looked at everything that had happened about all of the different ways that the churches were being strengthened and, and they were being added to daily. And then this language was introduced of now the churches were being multiplied. And so this is all evidence that the Holy Spirit is work is at work. And it says here, and they were increasing in number daily. So every time we see these churches growing, it's usually right after the word The Word of God has been strengthened and confirmed and preached and taught in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the churches were being strengthened in the faith. And as they were being strengthened, they were now becoming more bold in their obedience to the Lord and their following of the Lord. And the Word of God strengthened their lives that they could be witnesses, that they could be light in the regions around them. So now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, so let's go back up and take a look at the map for a minute. As you can see on the right-hand side when they left Antioch, you can see Cilicia. Um, Phrygia is in there somewhere in, in all those words. Uh, and then it said the region of Galatia. So you see that first little area there. You can, if you can see Lystra, hopefully, you see that little uh, call out. This is Paul and Barnabas mistaken for gods. That was on the first journey. But as they've now been traveling up through that region there, there's the word Phrygia right there in the middle of the map. I don't know if you can see it. But the word is telling us here that they've, they've sort of made this trek. And you can see Lystra and you can see Derby down there at the bottom. And they're going through that green region. And that green region's called uh, Galatia. It says here, now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, which would indicate they've, they've now come up into this yellow area called Asia. Asia in biblical times was sort of this region here of what we know as Turkey, not so much Asia to the east that we know of today. So they've kind of come into this area. And as is always the case with Paul and, and any missionary as they are going, as they're traveling, they're seeking the Lord. Lord, where should we go? What should we do? So as they had gone through that, that part of the journey, it says in verse 6, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. They're in Asia. And they were sent out by the Lord, and yet the Holy Spirit is saying, no, no, I don't want you to preach the word here in this area, at least not right now. I'd like to share a quote with you that I think helps sort of bring this into perspective. We note with interest that the Holy Spirit actually forbade Paul to do something we normally think of as good. That was preaching God's word to those who need it. Yet the Spirit of God directed this work and Paul wasn't the right person in the right place at the right time to begin bringing the gospel to the Roman province of Asia. Uh, There was certainly nothing wrong with Paul's desire to preach the word in Asia, but it wasn't God's timing, so this was forbidden by the Holy Spirit. So we have here God in the driver's seat. God is driving. God is directing. In verse 7, after they had come to Mysia, uh, as you can look along there in the map, I realize it's a little difficult to see, um, but Mysia, as I remember here, if you follow that dotted line, is more up to the north. <clears throat> so as they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia. You could see Bithynia up there, that red area. So down there where you see the dotted line sort of depart and go north, that's where it seems that the Lord spoke to them here. They headed up in that direction. God said, don't go to Asia. So they kind of diverted more away from Asia. So they headed north. 
So they wanted to go west. God forbade them. They headed north. They got up to the region of Bithynia and they tried to go into Bithynia. <clears throat> but verse 7, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. By the way, some of your translations may say the Spirit of Jesus. <clears throat> and that's just a difference in uh, manuscripts. And it says in verse 8, so passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. So you can see they traversed that northern border there, right above Adramidium. And as they came around, they ended up in Troas. So they were coming west. They got to the border of the green and the yellow. The Holy Spirit directed them north. They go up there. The Holy Spirit didn't let them go into Bithynia. They came the only way they could, which is along the coast. Because the Lord, look, they kind of avoided Asia, right? Because God said, don't go into Asia. And as they got to Troas, now they are there sort of waiting on the Lord. The interesting thing is when Paul started out on this journey, I'm sure he did not set out to go to Troas. Uh, it was at least a third choice for him, but it was the Holy Spirit's plan to lead him there. Uh, Paul, beautifully responsive to the Holy Spirit, was willing to lay down his will and his plans for the direction that the Holy Spirit brought into his life. Paul was guided in this situation by hindrance. The Holy Spirit often guides as much by the closing of doors as he does by the opening of doors. David Livingston wanted to go to China, but God sent him to Africa. William Carey wanted to go to Polynesia, but God sent him to India. Adoniram Judson went to India, but God directed him to Burma, which is modern-day Thailand. God guides us along the way to just the right place. So the Spirit of God, speaking to these men, directing them where he wanted them to go, and you have to imagine that this was probably, with these men being missionaries, with them being pioneers, for all of those hundreds of miles they had been wanting to preach the gospel and to serve the Lord and plant churches, but God was directing them very strategically to the place he wanted them to go. So this area here that you see in yellow by Asia and everything sort of to the east and south at this point, now going back to the beginning of the book of Acts, remember, we're going to send the gospel to where? To Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. This region in Asia and East and South is sort of the known world at that time to the Jews. And, uh, you know, Italy is, is coming up. Italy's further to the uh, west from there. But that border right there, as you see, Thrace and Macedonia, that's what we would consider modern-day Europe. And so this directing of the Holy Spirit is now taking the gospel out of those regions for the very first time to the region of Europe. And here's something that's important for you and I. Because of that, because the gospel went to the Gentiles in Europe, we are here. Because the gospel went to Europe, because Paul and his team were sensitive to the Holy Spirit, God broke into Europe. And so let's just kind of stay tuned for that as we go through here. One more quote that I think is just helps us understand this. God will lead us according to his own perfect plan for our lives and for our ministries. We must be careful not to box God in by our prior experiences. 
The most important thing by far is our attitude. Why God directs us west when we expect to go north, we do not know. And why he did not give Paul a vision at the beginning instead of at the end, so to speak, of this journey, we cannot fully explain. But this we know. God directs us through every situation. The apparently good and the apparently bad. We need to yield to his caring hand. G. Campbell Morgan said, It is better to go to Troas with God than anywhere else without him. So, having this attitude of just saying, Lord, where do you want me to go? Today, what do you want me to do? Who do you want me to speak to? In verse 9, we find, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, so they're in Troas, waiting on the Lord. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision... Immediately, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So they've traveled all that journey. They traverse all the way around the border of what's labeled as Asia there. They get to Troas. They're waiting on the Lord. And the Lord speaks to Paul in a vision. And the next morning, Paul shares that vision with his team. And we find in verse 10 something that's significant that we want to underline and highlight. In verse 10, now after he, Paul, had seen the vision, immediately we. Now remember, Dr. Luke is writing this account, the book of Acts that we have. And this is the very first time that Luke refers to himself by including himself using the pronoun we. Immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel. So Luke joins the team in Troas. And this is where something major and wonderful and significant begins to happen because, of course, God used Luke to pen the gospel of Luke. God used Luke to now come alongside Paul as a doctor, as a physician, and probably to be his personal physician, to care for him, for the, for, as far as I know, for the rest of, of his journeys. And so we have this amazing thing. So God, we sort of begin to see the subplot that God has going on here, right? He, he had Timothy join the team. Timothy replaces John Mark. And now we find God's now going one better rather than just having a servant. He has a doctor join the team. And he becomes Paul's personal doctor. And now Luke begins to refer to himself in, uh, as part of the team saying we and us. And you can now see as you just go on through here, we, 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 where he is now considering him part to have joined the team. I found this quote really interesting. <clears throat> the wi wisdom and greatness of God's plan was beginning to unfold. In Paul's mind, he wanted to reach a few cities in his region, but God wanted to give Paul a continent to win for Jesus Christ. So Paul becomes that pioneer into the region of Europe. So in verse 10, now after uh, he had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Interesting, God spoke to one man. That one man shared the vision of what God had spoken to him. And the rest of the team said, okay, then God has spoken to us. Not just to him. Okay, God spoke to him. No, they said God spoke to us. You see, there's something very important there we don't want to miss, that they owned it. That they identified with it because 
You see, when, when things get tough, you can always say, well, supposedly God spoke to him, right? And we can kind of blame it back on him if we don't like what he's saying or the direction he's leading. But you see, they accepted it. They said, well, we believe God spoke to you, Paul. And so we're buying into that and we're, and we're taking it as though God not spoke not only to you, but that he spoke to us. He spoke to us through you. So there was no turning back. And that's very important for us to understand that when we have faith, when we are reading the scriptures, when we are buying into what God has said, we may read it and say, hey, that was something God said to Elijah, you know, 4,000 years ago. No, God's still speaking today. And he's speaking to us just as he spoke to these men as he led them. So these men were sold out. They were bought in to what had happened Therefore, verse 11, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and the next day came to Neapolis. So Samothrace was the seaport uh, on the way from uh, where they went in Troas up to Neapolis. And it's interesting when it says here, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, we find out here historically, and I'll read this to you, this is revealing because this is a nautical expression that means the wind was at their backs. So perfect were the winds that they sailed 156 miles in just two days, whereas when they returned on their other journey, it took them five days to make the same trip. So it would seem here after the Lord had spoken to Paul and Troas and given him this vision and they got on this ship and they ran to Samothrace and then on up to Neapolis that God was in a sense confirming that they had heard his word and he put them on the ship and the ship was like a bullet going to Samothrace. And from there, verse 12 uh, to Philippi, so that was a 10 or 12 mile, mile hike inward from the seaport, to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. Now let me give you a little background of the city of Philippi. Listen carefully because this hopefully will open your mind to what was behind God's master plan for why he took them uh, that way, that circuitous route all the way up to get them into Europe to Philippi. Philippi was an ancient town having been renamed in 356 BC by Philip of Macedon after himself. With the expansion of the Roman Empire, it became a Roman possession in 167 BC, but its greatest fame came from the fact that it happened to be the place where the armies of Mark Antony and Octavian defeated Brutius and Cassius in the decisive battle of the Second Roman Civil War in 42 BC. It was from this event that Philippi derived its character in Paul's day because for its part in the battle it was awarded the status of a Roman colony that answered directly to the Roman emperor. Roman soldiers were encouraged to retire there to Philippi and its citizens were exempt from provincial taxes. Paul and his company were now in for a complete cross-cultural missionary experience. So this city of Philippi, think about it, had a direct line to Rome. This city was the foremost city in that region. And Paul always seemed to have this idea that wherever possible, he wanted to plant a church in a city. Because the cities were the center, the hub. And everything came in from the surrounding regions to the cities. And then they would go back out from the cities to the rural regions. 
And so it seemed to be this pattern that God established through Paul that he would go and walk into these large cities and share the gospel. And we're going to see that as we continue. Look, Amphipolis, uh, Berea, Thessalonica, uh, Athens, these cities where God takes Paul. So as they get there, verse 13, on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now the interesting thing is about this large bustling city of Philippi, there was no synagogue there. There had to be at least 10 Jewish males present for a synagogue to be built. And by Roman practice, Roman law, or excuse me, Jewish practice rather, when they had reached 10, they were sort of obligated to build a synagogue in that city. So here we are in this large city. And there's no synagogue, so they knew by Jewish custom that if there were no synagogue, that they would find the nearest body of water, and that would become the place that they would worship God. So on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city, because there were, was no synagogue, to the city, uh, out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made, and it would have been easy for them to understand, because they would just ask around, Hey, where is it that people go to pray around here? Go down to the river. So they go. They sat down and spoke to the women who met there. So there were a group of women who were meeting to pray and to worship the Lord. Now in verse 14, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was the seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Now, in case you've never heard this or you've forgotten it, there are no coincidences with God. This is not just a random thing, not just a happenstance thing that's happening. God is directing the situation. So the first people that Paul and uh, Silas and Timothy and Luke speak to in the name of the Lord is this group of women worshiping by the river. Now it makes you wonder in the vision that God gave Paul. Was the vision Lydia? Was the vision, you know, in the next, uh, next week as we continue on in this chapter, we're going to find out that there's the Philippian jailer. Was the Philippian jailer the vision? Or perhaps was the vision just God saying, look, come over here. People need help. They need the gospel. Notice when it says, come over here and help us. You know, we can't think in conventional terms like, okay, you need help moving a piece of furniture. In biblical context, when people need help, understand they need the gospel. They need Jesus Christ. And so God's speaking to Paul and the team in this vision. As they are now there in Philippi and they're down by the river... They happen upon this lady named Lydia, a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. Thyatira, you can look this up, uh, Revelation chapter 2. It's one of the places that Jesus wrote a church, wrote a church, wrote a letter to the church in Thyatira. And it's interesting as we think about that, because this is the first time Thyatira is mentioned in the scriptures, that Lydia's household are probably the ones who established the church in Thyatira. So much so that Jesus himself writes a letter. Now, it's not a great letter, the letter to the church in Thyatira, but they merit receiving a letter from the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So Lydia heard she was there. She was a seller of purple. Here's something interesting. People had discovered, and you always wonder how people discover these things. There was a little snail. And somebody had somehow figured out that if you stroke the snail's throat, that it would emit this goo. And they would take this goo, and once they had collected enough of it, they would put it on some kind of a dish or a platter and set it in the sun. And they had to watch it because it would change color from whatever color it was when it came out, you know, kind of go through a spectrum to, to yellow, to, to green, to other colors. And it would come to this purple color, and when it had reached that purple color, they would remove it from the sun. And that, that snail, whatever it was became the purple dye that became the trademark of the Roman Empire. Whenever you saw a purple robe, it came from, from this snail. And so it turns here, turns out here that Lydia was a lady who had gotten into this business and she was a seller of purple fabric. And it says that she worshipped God. So the interesting thing is that she was a, a, a business person, a businesswoman. She was in a lucrative trade. Uh, no doubt, probably wealthy because of, you know, she kind of was, had the direct line in selling this purple dye and ultimately the fabric to Rome. And notice she's a worshiper of God. So she's a strategic person, right? She's a person of influence, a person of means. And God is taking the gospel here to her. And it says here, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. You see, this is a work that God has to do in every heart, right? The Lord has to open the heart. We, we look at these things and we, and we, we look at people and we, we pray and we see that they, all, they open their heart, but you see God's also at work. When we read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For it is by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, we believe that little phrase was referring to, back to the issue of faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, that even God gives us the faith by which we believe and become saved. So the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized... So this was a dramatic thing. Not only was she saved, and did she, not only did she become convinced in that moment, in that little conversation by the river, but she immediately, whether her whole household was there or they had to go back to wherever they were all staying, and you get the idea here, she took the whole entourage back with them and, and her whole household got saved. And it says they were all baptized. And notice what it says in verse 15, and she begged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. So this was a person who after she got saved immediately, her faith became alive. And she said, look, I've got means, I've got a house, you guys need a place to stay, you just wandered into the city, come stay at my house. Use it as a base of operations. Let us provide for you. See, what an amazing thing. You see, when God leads... God provides. And that's a saying that we often say, where God guides, God provides. And God led these men through these strange circumstances by closing doors, hundreds of miles, circuitous route, up to Troas, and then finally God speaks in a dream. And because of that, God takes the gospel across the ocean into Europe. It's an amazing thing. And, and we're just in the middle of this. 
right? We've got more to go. Go ahead and, and, and read the rest of the chapter and, and get a sense of what God is doing here. But as we kind of pause right here this week, I want to share a couple of scriptures with you about this idea of God's leading. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, it says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. In another translation, that same verse says, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Now, as we've seen so far today from our story, they had a plan and they began leaving and working and going through the region and they went through that region where they had ministered before and they just kind of were going on thinking, we'll just go on to the next city and do what we do. And yet God dramatically closed some doors and redirected their path. And that's the thing that we have to be open to. Proverbs 19, verse 21, there are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. Proverbs 19, 21, in another translation, says many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Finally, in the book of James, and there's many places we could go, Chapter 4, it says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. So the idea here is, we prayerfully make our plans. We stay open to the leading of the Lord. And we allow him to direct us. We allow him to change our plans. Because the ultimate is, the bottom line is, hopefully, we want what God wants. Because isn't it true that Father knows best? You see, God always knows best. How can he not know best? He's the creator of the universe. He spoke the world into existence. He formed us in our mother's wombs. He has been leading us since before we even knew what was going on. And I often find the case that when someone comes to faith in Christ, when they become a believer, when they're forgiven and they realize that, and they begin to then look back on their lives, they can see God's hand. They can see where God protected them from this or led them into that. And ultimately how God brought them to that place of saving faith, of believing in Christ. You see, when God leads, it's better. It's better than when I lead. It's better than when you lead. It's way better than me getting my way. And I tell you something, I see it all the time in people, but especially in believers, where we're so headstrong and so driven to our own plans. We've made a plan, we've written it out, and you know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And I usually kind of take a step back and I take a little breath and I say, that's fine, but did you pray? Have you submitted this to God's word? Have you taken your plan before the throne of grace and are you allowing God to direct that plan? You see, here's what we often get out of order in our lives. We make a plan and then we ask God to bless it. I would submit to you that's the wrong order. We go to the Lord, we pray, we read his word, we seek his face and then we make our plans and we ask him to direct it. 
I think there's a big difference in asking God to direct our ways and to direct our plans than asking God to bless our plans. What if God doesn't want to bless my plans? Now what? You see, but if I've submitted myself to him, and if I've asked his permission, think about that. How often as an adult do you ask somebody permission? Oh, you might do it at work, because you have to or you might get fired. But in your relationship with the Lord, do you ask him out of respect and out of honor, Lord, can I have your permission to do this, to go down this path to make this decision? You know, we're, 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 you know, I've mentioned, of course, that we are meeting, uh, going through 2 Samuel right now, but we've already seen through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Whenever King Saul, uh, whenever anybody asked the Lord, Lord, can we do this? Lord, should we go up to this battle? Lord, will you give it into our hands? If the Lord spoke and they went, then God blessed it, and he did give it into their hands. But so often the, the example of King Saul was because he had wandered away from the Lord, he didn't ask. He just made his plans and did what he wanted to do. And you know what the end of his life was? The end of his life was a tragedy because he didn't seek the Lord. And so we need to have this mindset. We want to let God lead. Amen? That's what we want to do. Let God lead. Submit our plans to him. Lord, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? Lord, can I have your permission? And if we will do that, I guarantee you our lives will go much better than they do when we don't do that. So we'll continue next week. God's amazing hand and plan and leading Paul and this team through the second missionary journey over the course of a couple of years and what God does in the way he established these, these churches and ultimately has used these churches to send the gospel to us. I mean, isn't God's plan amazing? That we sit here today because of Acts chapter 16 and because of Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke being obedient to the voice of the Holy Spirit. God, we love you this morning. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for ministering to us, Lord. And Lord, we know when you lead, it's, all, it's so much better. And so Lord, we want to follow you. Lord, give us a sensitivity to your voice. Give us the ability to hear you. Give us the diligence to seek you. And the willingness, Lord, in our own hearts to lay down our own pride and our own plans that we might follow you all the days of our life. We pray these things this morning in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.